please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We are returning here to the study of the gospel according to Luke after uh, just a little bit of time away to consider some things about the love of God and the security of the believer and all that God is doing in our lives. No matter who we are uh, as Christians, we all have the same thing going on, which is that God is working for us to work all things for good. One of the ways that he does this, of course, is through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And we are learning in the Gospel of Luke about his earthly ministry. In particular, we're learning in Luke chapter 4 through 9 about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. His ministry in Galilee. The northern portion of Israel, this took place for about a year and a half of his public ministry. And we have looked at several sections of what went on during that time. And we look at another one here this morning in Luke chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read verses 33 through 39 and consider what we will call this morning in with the old or out with the old, excuse me, and in with the new. Luke chapter 5 verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you can't make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Sometimes just merely adapting or adjusting things or making minor modifications is not enough. Sometimes a wholesale change is needed. So it was when Jesus arrived upon the earth. The old religion that had come from the Old Testament and had even crept up around it with some particular ways of applying Old Testament principles and commands came to be confronted implicitly by Jesus' practice and by the practice of his disciples. The things that people were used to doing were just not going to cut it anymore. And it isn't because those things had been bad or wrong in and of themselves, but they didn't fit the time. They were no longer a fit for the occasion or for the situation in which the people of Israel now found themselves. When Jesus came on the scene, everything changed. And when we come to this passage, again, Jesus is in the middle of his Galilean ministry, and he's beginning to face some opposition from some people who had their own ideas about what Jesus should be doing. And some of these ideas were rooted in Old Testament practices. Others were rooted in slight or even egregious misinterpretations and misapplications of Old Testament principles. But others still were rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of the person that they had in front of them as they were watching him. They didn't realize just how unique and important Jesus was. 
And so they thought that the old ways of doing things and the ways that align with Jesus and with the Messiah not being there were perfectly acceptable and should continue, even when they're telling him what he should be doing and what his disciples should be doing. And so they take issue with him. They have a problem with him, and they have a problem with him throughout this passage, the one that went before, the one that we're in now, and the one that will come after this. Now, just to catch us up here a little bit, we uh, looked last time we were here at the problem that the Pharisees and their scribes had with Jesus uh, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. They had a problem with him fellowshipping with them because, hey, these people are unrighteous. These people are unclean. They're not the kind of people that you should be spending your time with, Jesus, if you are the Messiah as you say that you are. And what Jesus answers them is, I didn't come for the purpose of validating people who already are righteous or even who think they are because none actually is. I came into the world as a savior. And if you don't understand that, the people that I spend my time with and the way that I interact with people isn't going to make sense. And so it is here. When we come to this text about Jesus and the things that he would do, his, the religious practices of his disciples, if you don't understand who he is and why he came into the world, then the distinction between his followers and the old ways of religion are not going to make sense. It's just going to look like he's trying to be different in some way that's not appropriate. It's going to look like he's neglecting to do things that are biblical and important. But when you realize who he is, that changes everything. That changes the whole game. And Jesus' lack of conformity with the default religious assumptions of the day uh, raises questions for us. What actually is different about him? In the previous passage, there was a question about with whom Jesus ate. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. But on this occasion, there's a question about whether he should even be eating at all, at least on certain occasions. Why are you not fasting? And these questions are here brought to him. Why don't you fast? Why don't you do the same things as the Pharisees? And hey, in fact, even the disciples of John, John, your forerunner, why don't you do the same things as they do? And Jesus answers their question by giving us two perspectives about his arrival on earth. Two important perspectives about his arrival on the earth. And these perspectives um, require that everyone conform their religion to him rather than the other way around. We have to conform our religion to Jesus Christ rather than putting Jesus into the box of what we're comfortable with or what we already know. And as we go through this, I think you'll see that this is unfortunately the way that many people treat Jesus. They treat him as someone who is good enough in himself, but he doesn't fundamentally change the way that they relate to God or their religious practices or their perspectives on really anything to do with the Bible. Jesus is added to their system and conformed to what they think rather than letting him wholesale evaluate and then completely change everything if that's what's necessary to actually then begin to practice the kind of religion that pleases God. So we have these two perspectives that Jesus is going to answer with. But before we get into them, we want to look at the question that brought them up. The question in verse 33 is a question about fasting. It's about fasting. They say to him, um, there are some people that do these things, but you don't. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees often do the same, but yours eat and drink. 
Now, coming out of the passage before this, it could look like this question is, uh, once again, an attack and a gotcha question. And there were certainly some who did that. Uh, at the same time, some parallel passages show for us that it wasn't only the Pharisees and scribes who were asking this. There was actually more of a general curiosity about this. There were disciples of John who asked the same thing. Nonetheless, Luke does want us to understand that the people who were opposing Jesus uh, in, in why he ate with these sinners and tax collectors also kind of had a problem with what he was doing here. Why do you not fast and offer prayers the same way as everybody else does? What do you think makes you so special, Jesus? And so they asked, fasting and praying. They fast and offer prayers. The disciples of John do it. The disciples of the Pharisees do it. So technically the question is about fasting and prayer, but really it's about the distinct issue of fasting. Jesus did pray, his disciples did pray, but they didn't pray in this way. In other words, he didn't practice fasting, and specifically he didn't practice fasting for the purpose of praying along with that fasting. He didn't have this joint practice of taking time away from food to go and to pray before God. His disciples didn't do that. Now, just to get into a little bit of what we're talking about when we talk about fasting, some of you may have heard the word, some of you may have done it, some of you may have no idea what fasting is. Why are we talking about a speed when it comes to a practice of Jesus? You think fast and slow, and that's all you know about it. Uh, what fasting is, of course, is uh, in the most basic sense, it is going without food. Uh, a little bit more specific, fasting is intentionally going without food. And then you have the practice that was started in the Old Testament, um, where on the Day of Atonement, there was a one-day-a-year prescription for Israel to humble themselves and to not eat any food and to devote themselves to prayer and to uh, humbling themselves before God. This would take place on the 10th day of the seventh month, on their seventh month of their calendar, which was in the fall season. Um, Occasions of fasting in the Old Testament existed where someone was humbling his soul before God for various reasons. So people would fast on occasion in the Old Testament for different things. Um, but it was always a, a posture of humility. Sometimes it was out of desperation. They didn't know what to do. They were going before God and they needed help. Sometimes it was to devote themselves to prayer for a time. And they gave themselves to pray and they didn't even really have time or desire to eat food. Or they were expressing how devoted they were to praying. Uh, how serious they were about what they were doing. Uh, sometimes it had to do with calamity, with a, just a terrible event that was taking place or that had taken place or that they were trying to stave off. And they would go before God and say, this horrible thing has happened, God. I want to humble myself before you and pray for forgiveness for what I have done or for what my nation has done. Uh, or it might be that this calamity is coming and they say, God, please turn away from doing this to us. We read about this in Jonah chapter 3 when the ruler of Nineveh said we need to proclaim a fast and sackcloth and ashes and let's humble ourselves before God and perhaps the Lord will turn away from his wrath that he has threatened us with. So fasting was common in the Old Testament on these various occasions. It could also take place when someone was grieving or mourning over their sin. Uh, there began to be late in the uh, Old Testament time period of fast and mourning that was proclaimed in the fifth month and the seventh month over the destruction of Jerusalem. And Zechariah 7 and 8 tells us about this. And it was prophesied in Zechariah 8 verse 19 that this fasting would one day be turned to joy when Judah was restored. 
But this practice of fasting had crept into really an entire so-called spiritual discipline. And in addition to the one-day-a-year prescription for the nation, and in addition to these occasional things, uh, the Pharisees began to fast twice a week on Monday and Thursday. We read about this in Luke 18, 12, where this Pharisee proclaims to God, I'm not like this tax collector. I, among other things, fast twice a week. The disciples of John themselves did indeed fast. John, uh, Luke 5, 33 tells us this. And it wasn't just them who did it, but John himself fasted. And it says in uh, Luke 7, 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this was not just a practice of a few people. This was kind of the common religious teaching of the time. And it was a major religious practice. This wasn't just something done by one or two random people or strange people. This was what the leaders and the teachers taught. So of course, when Jesus isn't doing it, it's going to raise some questions. Now, when it comes to fasting, one of the reasons many people are confused about what they should be doing or not uh, as Christians is that it describes fasting on some occasions in the Bible. Uh, it was even commanded, again, as a nation for Israel on this one day a year. But um, there's not really a lot of fasting that's actually commanded that you ought to do it as believers. So there's this sort of low-level feeling that maybe you should be doing it, but not a lot of prescription as to whether or not you should be doing it. There are instructions in Matthew 6 about when you fast, what you should do. Uh, if you are fasting, you should make sure that you're not doing it for show or so that people can see it. Instead, you're supposed to be doing this in a way where you're not uh, trying to get people to praise you, but rather this is in secret before God. So there are, there are instructions if you do fast. Um, there are parameters given if you do it, but the actual commands to Christians to do this are lacking. So there can be some confusion about this um, for those reasons and others. And yet it is here something that they did, but Jesus did not necessarily do or have his disciples do in particular while he was there. And one important thing to take away from this is that even though fasting is something that is uh, given some details about how to go about it, and even though there were at least a couple of occasions of the church, of people in the church fasting when they sent out or appointed leaders in the church in Acts 13 and 14, there's no direct commandment for Christians to do this thing. As we go through this, you'll see that there are some, uh, some reasons why you might and why it might even be expected that there would be some occasions of this. But there is no direct commandment about this, and I hope that that at least is clear. Uh, when the people are described here, when it comes to fasting, there are three different groups of people. Do you notice who they are? Verse 33, the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, and the disciples of who? Jesus. Three groups. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, or people who had a problem with Jesus, would like to take these three groups and to turn them into two categories. There's, uh, there's category one, people who don't eat and drink. People who fast. People who don't just eat and drink all the time. Jesus' disciples, he said, eat and drink. But the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. So they want to categorize them in two ways. John's disciples, Pharisees' disciples, they fast. Jesus' disciples, yours don't. Those are the two categories. Um, and really, if you want to broaden it out, 
um, all of the popular religion at the time in Israel would have been practicing this. So John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees didn't agree on everything, but they did agree on this one practice. So it's kind of like, Jesus, why are you the oddball here? Why are you the outlier? Well, the reality is that that categorization of the groups is wrong. John's group actually is not aligned with the Pharisees, even though they practice this one practice in somewhat the same way. John's group under the hood is actually aligned with who? With Jesus. John and his ministry was a precursor to Jesus' ministry. So it's not that the Pharisees and John are on one side. It's that John and Jesus are on one side. And the Pharisees are kind of missing the point. And so they complain, hey, you're not doing what we're doing. John's disciples are doing what we're doing. And you're not. But actually, it's the other way around. Because at the heart of it, John and his disciples, they had the message right. We are here for Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. We're here for repentance. The nation needs to repent. We're not about surface level religion, even though we do practice things that are visible. But we're about the heart and turning from your evil ways and actually being prepared for the Messiah. And so the Pharisees miss the entire point. And they look and say, hey, this external practice, they're just like us. And Jesus says, actually, no, no, they're not. The fasting and prayers of the disciples then and the fasting and prayer of the Pharisees look the same on the surface. But in reality, they're very different. Um, they may have had different degrees of sincerity. It's true that um, this, this would have often been the case. Although some Pharisees were actually quite sincere, even if sincerely wrong. You can read about Paul's testimony of that in Philippians chapter 3. Um, also, the uh, disciples of John uh, probably fasted, as we'll see in this passage, a little bit more based on the situation rather than the Pharisees who fasted merely ritualistically. Um, and some Pharisees may have been doing it even from true and saving faith, but just because the practice is the same doesn't mean the underlying reasons and motives are the same. There may have been some because there were ultimately some Pharisees who did believe. But what the, the message here that's implied is... Uh, there are some times when your religious practice will look the same on the surface to outside observers, but actually be very different. And then there are times when your religious practice will look very different on the surface to outside observers, but actually be the same. And if you look at these through three groups, that's the way that this works out. And sometimes it looks this way when we think about uh, the way that the church practices things. The church's worship, the church's liturgy, uh, or really any kind of stylistic thing, whether it's clothing or sound or anything else like that. Um, churches may meet at different times, be different sizes. They may have very different musical styles. They may dress very differently. And yet they actually share the exact same faith. The disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus looked very different in their schedule and their eating practices. But they were on the same line. Whereas the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees looked the same on the outside. But they actually were on very different wavelengths. And this is true when it comes to the church as well. Sometimes the church is the same size and meets at the same time and has the very same style of music. They might even dress the same way or even use the same Bible translation. But when it comes to a view of Jesus and salvation, one is biblical and the other is not. It's not what it looks like on the surface. Too many times people are concerned with the style and just all that they can see on immediate observation. We meet Sunday morning. We meet Sunday night. We meet Wednesdays. We have small groups. We are contemporary. We're traditional. Whatever it might be. And really, those things are not at the heart of what actually makes you aligned with the Bible or with one another. 
the reality is, what do you think about Scripture? What do you believe about the Bible? And what do you believe about Jesus? And who do you understand him to be? And how do you respond to him? This is what Jesus wants to get at. He cuts past the misunderstanding and cuts through it and shows them why they are misunderstanding the whole situation. Because when you understand who he is, then everything falls into place. It all makes sense. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are two perspectives that Jesus gives us, two important perspectives that he gives us. And we now turn to these in verses 34 through 39. And he responds to their questions, including those who were asking them in an accusatory way, uh, in two ways. He gives two categories of illustrations. Uh, One has to do with a wedding and a bridegroom and fasting versus feasting. And then the other has to do with some illustrations about what is old versus what is new. The illustration about the bridegroom and feasting demonstrates that there is a temporary season that Jesus is with his disciples and that this indicates for them that there's an appropriate way to respond that doesn't include fasting at that time because of what the nature of fasting was. And then the second uh, category of illustration, the new versus the old, shows that there is a permanent change with the arrival of Jesus into the world that means that we need to think differently about the way that religion is practiced. So the first perspective here is in verses 34 and 35 where we find this. Jesus' presence represents a unique religious era. Jesus' presence represents a unique religious era. And so he answers their accusations. They say, why do you do this? They, they say, um, hey, you're not doing what they're practicing. And he answers by giving them this picture. You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? The expected answer to the question is, of course, not. No, you cannot make them do this. Um, there is a picture here of a bridegroom. Now, there is a time and a place for fasting. And the time and the place historically in the Old Testament is when you're humbling yourself, when something bad has happened or something bad could happen. A lot of times it has to do with confessing sin. But those are certain seasons of life or certain occasions. That is completely different than the picture of a wedding. What do we think of when we think of a wedding? Well, maybe if you've been involved in putting one together, it's not quite so joyful because of all the stuff leading up to it and the work that goes in and you're fatigued by wedding day. But besides that, the whole point is that it's a time of joy. It's a a joyous occasion. People come together, people that don't get to see each other that much, and someone is getting married, this wonderful occasion in their lives. And so Jesus is saying, look, there is a time and place where sadness And the kind of practice that that is connected with that is just not fitting. Why would you feast, or fast rather, at a wedding? Why would you do that? Uh, When the guys get together at a wedding, you know, they're all coming together. They come in from out of town, and they haven't seen each other in a while. And you come together, and you're, hey, uh, you guys want to have a little bachelor celebration here? Okay, why don't we just go fast for a couple of days? Let's just go be unpleasantly hungry. That would be a good idea. No one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. Um, Jesus says you need to understand that certain events and seasons in life call for different practices than at other times. And so um, 
you might ask yourself, who fasts at a wedding? Who fasts at a wedding? Uh, I had a cousin who sadly passed away several years ago, but before that was uh, an extremely serious bodybuilder. He worked for a nutrition company. Uh, he was just constantly doing things. He competed. And one of the things that, uh, that was noticeable about him was that most of the time that I saw him, he was actually eating terribly. But that's because most of the times I saw him in person were on Christmas Day. And he would come together with a family occasion and uh, he would say things like, I only eat like this one day a year. I only eat like this one day a year. Uh, now, there may be some bodybuilders who wouldn't even eat like that on that one day a year, but he was willing to do that for one day a year, and then he would go back to being extremely serious and just everything that he ate, everything was perfectly planned out, just very, very serious about it. And uh, that, that indicates something, which is uh, even someone who is that serious about this, who would never touch all this stuff any other day said, you know, when we get together with family, I'm just not going to be so persnickety about this. I'm going to eat this stuff that tastes good, and I'm going to celebrate with everyone else. Now, if you don't do that at Christmas, and you just got to stick 365 days a year to your diet, then that's fine. That's not wrong. But you understand why someone wouldn't, and you understand why people would make exceptions. Even someone who has an ongoing season in their life where they feel like just devoting themselves to the Lord for fasting, for prayer, for whatever it might be. If there was a wedding, you would understand if they came out of that to celebrate for a time. Because this is just the nature of the event. It's a special occasion, birthday parties, weddings, whatever it might be. Most of you have probably at some point in your life tried to change your diet or start something new like that. But I would imagine you usually don't start on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Or maybe the day before you leave for vacation. Nobody does that at that time. Why? It's not the right time. It's not the right time. Or can you imagine storming in at a birthday party and telling everyone they need to stop eating so much cake? Hey, you guys need to eat healthy. Maybe save that until the party is over. It's just not the time. So there's a time and a place for fasting, Jesus says, but it's not now. And if you don't think that he's okay to let his disciples not practice this indication of sadness while he's with them, then you don't understand who he is. You don't understand who Jesus is. He is the bridegroom pictured here, and he is with them. And if you don't understand why that fasting doesn't fit the occasion, then you're missing that he is the Messiah. You're completely missing the picture of who Jesus is. So then, you can't make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But now he adds something that is uh, not expected. And it may be easy for us to, to be okay with the statement that he makes, not be so shocked by it, because we're coming in and we understand sort of the before and after of what went on here, biblically speaking. But um, consider what Jesus has just told them. He's the bridegroom. He is the one that everybody is celebrating. What's the context of this? He's the Messiah. He's the expected one. He is coming to reign. And what does the Messiah come to do? To come and to stay. He's coming to stick around. But that's not what Jesus says. The days, he says, will come. The days will come. For what? For fasting? Because the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them. Now that is a stunning statement. And it's the first hint we get in this from Jesus. That he is not necessarily going to come and be here for good. Upon his first coming. It's really shocking, in fact. 
he is going to come and to be here and to celebrate this feast. He's going to be with the attendants of the bridegroom. They are celebrating his arrival and his presence. But there's going to come a time when he's taken away from them. And this is really sobering. Jesus is hinting at, really just implying, his rejection by men. We know, of course, what is going to take place to cause this. He's going to be rejected, punished for something he didn't do, crucified. And he, in the process, is going to take the penalty for sins upon himself. And through this, he makes the way of salvation between us and God. And yet, it's not what they expected. And it means that he is going to not only be crucified and resurrected, but that there will be a time when he would go away. And a time that still has not itself finished. What you have then is, with respect to Jesus, you have four eras in history, basically, when it comes to Jesus and his presence. You have the time before his arrival, when people were waiting for him. You have the time during his time on earth, when people were with him. Then you have the time after his departure, when he's gone again. And then once again, you will have the time when ultimately he comes back to stay. So two times where he's gone, with two times where he's here in between. But we are in the third of those right now. We are in the time when Jesus is not with us. And so there is an appropriateness of saying that um, we are in a different era than the disciples were in at that time. We have a little bit more hope in some ways because we know who he is and we've seen him and we know what he did. But it would not be inappropriate for us to lament the fact that Jesus is not with us in person right now. To long for this. This is why the Bible describes the concept of believers loving the appearing of Jesus. If you have a friend that you're looking forward to coming into town for a wedding and you get together after a long time. Or if you're looking forward to celebrating something with someone and you're, you have not been able to do that and you miss them. Then you understand the sensation of longing for Jesus to appear and saying, you know, this is sad and grievous until it takes place. So we ought to miss Jesus this much. To have to know that he has been taken away in a sense. And yes, this would mean that one of the appropriate emotions and dispositions would be to grieve or to lament or to long for the presence of Jesus Christ. And should we decide to do so, it would be appropriate to pair those types of prayers and humbling of ourselves and longings before God, even with the dedication that's demonstrated through the practice of fasting on occasion. So he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Thankfully, those days will not last forever and one day he will come again. And when he comes, uh, there will be no more fasting out of grief. There will be none of that. There will be instead the joy that comes from Jesus being present with us. So what is he saying then about fasting? Well, what he says is it's a mismatch. The practice of fasting does not align with the presence of the Savior. It's not a mismatch so much between Old Testament and New Testament, where it's Old Testament fasting and New Testament not. Um, Jesus himself really comes in continuity from the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the promises. They don't conflict concerning him. But it is a new era and a new situation whenever he is present. Whenever he is present. 
So Jesus doesn't have a problem with fasting in and of itself. He actually gave instructions about it. He didn't criticize the disciples of John for fasting. Uh, the apostles would fast when they appointed elders or before they went out to uh, the church at Antioch. At least they fasted on one occasion appointing elders. This is not a criticism of fasting. He's just saying you want to make sure that it's the right fit for the circumstances. Is it the right tool for the job? Are you going to do repair work, he asked, on a brand new house? No. Why, why not? Because it, it doesn't need it in that situation. So why would you fast if the bridegroom is with you? So then, uh, they can't be sad while someone like this is with them. But there's even more to it than that. Um, even if fasting were not a proxy here for lament or longing, even if it didn't represent that, that it was a certain situational thing, there's still something else that they're missing as well. And he wants to address this. Um, Jesus is so special and so unique that he really requires a wholesale reevaluation of everything that you're doing. Not just fasting, not just the things where you're doing something different than what Jesus is doing in that way. Um, but it isn't just the practice of fasting that needs to be reconsidered. It's everything in light of him. Everything that you think, everything that you're doing, religious practice-wise. Now, to be careful, Jesus did not come to abolish or to destroy the Old Testament. We read this in Matthew chapter 5. He was very clear. I didn't come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. So he doesn't come to undo the Old Testament. But what he does say is that there is a change that takes place with responding to him that recognizes who he is and that acts in ways that are according to that. And he's saying this is the dawn of a new time, a new era and he may be the fulfillment of an old promise but the promise is still for something that in many ways is new and different and it seems like many of them are missing the point by virtue of bringing up this thing in the first place and so Jesus wants them to understand he wants them to understand the reality and so he answers them and he answers them by giving them three pictures and these pictures demonstrate for us now we get the second perspective in verses 36 to 39 they show us Jesus uniqueness requires a new religious practice. Jesus' uniqueness requires a new religious practice. Now, he does this by means of uh, illustration or parable. He was also, verse 36, telling them a parable. Jesus did often teach in parables. Um, this one, like some other times when the word is used, doesn't quite fit so neatly into the box of what we often think of as a parable. When you think of a parable, what do you think? You think maybe a story uh, that illustrates something. Well, here it's not necessarily a story. It's more just of an illustration in general of a picture. And he gives three of them. Now, they have to do here with old versus new. And he uses these words repeatedly. Verse 36, new garment, old garment. Tear the new, new doesn't match the old. Verse 37, new wine, old wineskins. Verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. He says the old is good enough. It's new and old, new and old, new and old. That is the point. He's comparing those things. Now again, Jesus is not at odds with the Old Testament. He's not making it irrelevant. He's not denigrating the Old Testament. But he is saying I'm different and I'm not just different of another kind. I am something that is altogether different. I'm unique is what he says. And he uses three different pictures here to help people think about uh, how he himself and his type of religion is different than what has been the case before his arrival. There are people here who are in his presence who want to preserve the past. Not so much because the past is better, but because they're comfortable with it and they don't really think and understand 
just how special he is. And so they want to fit him into their practice rather than being willing to reevaluate their categories. And he says, you can't do that. And he gives them three pictures to show us this. One picture has to do with clothing. Two pictures have to do with wine. And you notice that all three mention this concept that no one acts in a certain way. Verse 36, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. And these statements that he makes are so self-evident that people would agree with him about the practice. And then he's going to apply each one of them and the principle that underlies that to his own person and the religion that follows him. The first picture here shows us that the new can't be merged into the old. The new can't be merged into the old. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, some bad things will happen. And you can imagine, you've got an old garment. It's got a hole in it. It needs to be patched up. So what do you do? You say, well, let's find the first thing that I've got here. Let me just get a new garment. And while I've got this new garment, you know, I've got the old garment that has to be fixed. So that's all I'm worried about. Let me grab a piece from this. Let me tear a piece off of this and put it on the old one. And he says, no one does that. No one is going to tear up a perfectly good new garment to fix the old one. Why? Well, it has two problems. Uh, first of all, he's going to tear the new garment. It's going to mess that up. So now, instead of having one new garment that works and zero old garments, now you've got one possible old garment that works and the new one has a hole in it. So now you have at least the same situation at best. And then the other problem is you take the piece off the, old gar off the new one and put it on the old, it doesn't match. It's not the same color or tint or amount of fade maybe it's not the same pattern exactly um, you can picture how that might work today as well it'd be really hard to match that and this of course doesn't just uh, doesn't uh, happen with clothing or anything else but maybe you're looking to match you know wallpaper or something like that and you realize you know I think I'm just going to have to rip all this out and just completely repaint the thing because there's no way I'm going to get this to align and to match with this matching things is hard and no one is going to get rid of something that works perfectly and ruin the thing that's good and new in order to fix the old one when it doesn't really fix it in the first place. This doesn't make sense. Why would someone do this? But Jesus is saying, this is what you're doing with me. You are trying to take the thing that is distinct about me and this joy that I bring and this, this newness that I have and who I am. And you're trying to fit me into the old ways of doing things. You're trying to kind of just update that a little bit. And he says, it doesn't even match. It doesn't work. What I'm doing, and if you understand the way to respond to me and to walk in, in, in conformity to Christ, it just doesn't even fit with these old practices that have developed around the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way. So, yeah, you're missing the point. Nobody would do that when it comes to practical things in real life. And no one should do that when it comes to religion. So the new can't be merged into the old. You can't just put Jesus into this old practice and say, hey, everything's good. The second illustration shows us that the new can't be sustained by the old. The new can't be sustained by the old. So he gives a picture of wineskins. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. So before uh, bottles or uh, being able to shape glass in this way or being able to, to use more modern containers, 
um, you could store wine in wineskins, wineskins, which were made out of leather, uh, usually sheepskin or goatskin. So what's the problem with using something like this? Well, you make the skin, you sew it together, and it can make a pretty good container that could be leak-proof uh, leak on some level. But what happens to this skin over time? Well, it gets old and it gets uh, brittle. And when you would put wine into non-old and brittle uh, wineskins, you put the new wine in there and then you put it into new skins, uh, as it ferments, it would expand. And that's fine when the leather is stretchable, when it's sort of pliable, but as it ages and as it gets more brittle, more and more brittle, then uh, eventually when you put new wine in there and it expands, it's going to bust. And that's exactly what he says happens. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. You have two problems here. You lose the wine and you lose the skins. Same thing as the garment. You lose the new garment, and in the old garment, it doesn't really work anyway. Well, the same thing here. Um, it just, when you try to put the two things together, it just doesn't work out. So he says new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Roughly speaking here, the new wine represents Jesus, and the new wineskins represent his way of practicing religion. If you're going to have a container, so to speak, to fit around Jesus and to sort of sustain the right response to Jesus and the right way of relating to him and practicing religion before God in light of him, it can't just be the same old thing. It isn't going to work. So you can't just, well, I'm going to keep on fasting because that's what we've always done. And Jesus is in the, uh, he's in line with the Bible and fasting is in line with the Bible. So let's just put these things together. Jesus says, no, you have to have something that's new. You have to rethink this. Have you reconsidered that I'm different than everything else that went before? And that's the message here. You can't just throw Jesus into the old practices. So new wine requires fresh wineskins. And then he warns with a third picture that the new may be rejected for the old. The new may be rejected for the old. Now this is a twist because the first two are saying there's just practices that are inappropriate in light of something being new. Uh, you can't merge the old system with the new in terms of practice and response. These things just don't fit with Jesus. But here this is something different, and Luke alone mentions this. And it's striking. It's striking here. Um, because he is saying that no one does this, but in this case, he's not really commending the practice. So in the previous cases, there's a recognition based upon normal practice that, yeah, something new comes along, you shouldn't use the old. But here it's a different angle. He says, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. And he is not saying that with regard to him, that's a good thing. He isn't saying that it's good to prefer the old over the new. In fact, he's turning it around and he's issuing this as a proverb and a warning. He says, um, there are people who drink the old wine per se. And they say, you know, I'm good with this. I'm, I'm good with the old ways of doing things. This is a warning to the Pharisees and anyone else that followed them that said, you know, the religion that we have is good enough. And Jesus, if you're not willing to change, to align with that, then we don't need you. We don't need anything new. So why would you need, uh, why would we need you? I wonder how you feel about technology 
from generations that have come after you. You know, maybe when you were in your teens, your 20s, if you're, if you're older than that now, um, you would start to pick up the new things that came along, you know, whether it's computers for a certain age or whatever it might be. You, you, you know, you embrace those kinds of things. But as you get older and older, you're a little bit slower to pick up new technology. And it, it isn't because you lack the, the intellectual capacity to do that. It's not too difficult for you in and of itself. But you say, you know, I got my computer set up the way I want it. I've got my phone the way I want it. I know my systems. I don't need all that stuff. I just, I just don't need it. I could learn it if I want to, but it's not worth what? The, the hassle. It's not worth it. I don't want to do it. Now, of course, you might then say, well, all this new stuff is not important. It's not really any good. And you start to have a certain attitude about it. Uh, but that's, that's beyond the point. The, the real point here that Jesus is making is that sometimes, you know, when good enough is good enough for you, you don't really want anything new. You don't care. It's just not that important to you. And so it is here when he talks about this with the wine. He says, look, sometimes people are okay with what they have. Um, and so they say, Jesus, you know, if you don't fit into our existing framework and our religious practice, you're not worth changing for. You're just not worth it. I'm happy with things the way that they are. And if this was true for the Jews of Jesus' day, how much more is it true for our own? And this is the way that people are today with regard to the gospel and with regard to Christianity. So they are raised in a particular religious way. Maybe they are raised apart from the Bible. Uh, but through one way or another, um, whatever means, they come to a view of right and wrong that largely aligns with what the Bible says is right or wrong. This could be because the Lord has written these things upon our hearts so that we in general have uh, a, a basic moral framework that is written upon our heart and our conscience. So we more or less know what's right and wrong unless we suppress that. Or it could be that they live in a culture like our own, which sort of has the, the uh, residual effects of lots of Christian influence. So they see problems that go on in society or they see the effects in life of, of living in a way that goes against biblical morality. And they say, you know, um, I, think, I think that the way the Bible describes it is largely right. You know, it may not be the only source of truth, but it's, it's largely right. And it's a, pretty good, it's a pretty good set of teachings, pretty good moral set of teachings, maybe even has some supernatural elements to it. And they, they come to be more and more in alignment with the Bible, and they kind of take that framework. And then they're presented with Jesus, they hear what he says, they see what he did, and they say, you know, this fits closely enough with my existing religious framework. I think I'm going to start calling myself a Christian. Or at least kind of identifying in some way with Christianity to the point where people might even think that you are a Christian. But from the start of this new identity as a Christian, this person has never really grappled with this fact. That Jesus does not come to slot in where you can fit him to your accumulated wisdom and morality. He doesn't come to where he can just align with as the parts of him that you want into your system and your way of thinking what is right or wrong. He doesn't come to do that. He doesn't come to kind of sidle up beside you in your religious practices and say, okay, now you've got me as well and you can call yourself saved. Instead, he comes to present something that is entirely his own. 
You get the whole package or you get nothing. And if you think that you can piecemeal take him in, then you're deceiving yourself. He doesn't come on those terms. That's the message here for these people. They, they were willing to at least listen to Jesus on some level. And it's like, hey, Jesus, if you get on board with what we're doing already, obviously we have it right. If you can just practice the things we're doing, and your disciples should practice the things that, that we're doing as well, you just slot right in there. You just fit right in. You align. You merge. You, you can, you know, our religion will support you. But that's not the way Jesus works. It's not the way that it works. Sadly, people are often deceived in this way um, because what they have looks close enough on the surface. They go to church, they sing certain things, they say certain things, they can even read the Bible, they can read Christian books. And so just like the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees sort of looked alike in some ways, many people have this view where, you know, they think, I'm a Christian because I have these morals and Jesus aligns with these morals and I think he's a good teacher and I know that I'm sinful and I kind of need a savior. And so, yeah, like I'm going to go with this. But that's not the way that Jesus works. He came to say, you have all of me or you have none. And you can't just ignore the difficult parts of scripture or the demands that he makes. You have to take him wholesale. So Jesus is warning against thinking that he's just like everything that went before. And of course, if he's different than Old Testament practice, what does that imply about Jesus compared to all other religions in the world? Well, he's of course very different than all of them as well. So if you say, well, why isn't he compatible with this? Why is there only one way to God? Well, Jesus says that his religion that surrounds him is unique and distinct. And if it's distinct from what was practiced in the Old Testament, which was written by God, then how much more is it distinct from every other man-made religion? Jesus is the way and the only way to God for many reasons, but one of them is because he is unique. He is different even than everything that came before. So don't try to put Jesus into your practices. Instead, what you need to do is recognize that he himself is unique. He himself is unlike anything that came before or will ever come again, except for his own self as he returns and that nothing, no system, whether it's the old system arising from the Old Testament and being applied, or whether it is any other religion, neither of these will be able to be able to align with the way that you really need to respond to Jesus. So how do you need to respond to him? Recognize his uniqueness. Recognize his uniqueness. Understand that he's not like anyone else. That he came into the world to reveal God. He came into the world to be the king. He came into the world to be the savior. And he didn't come to just be another teacher in line. He didn't come to just tweak some things. But he came to be the be-all, end-all of everything. And you can have salvation in him if you embrace him on those terms. Of course, if you do this, we recognize you have to trust in his work and his work alone. No amount of fasting, no amount of praying, or any other religious practices will be enough to earn your way to God or to merit favor with him. It is by humbling yourself through faith alone. And this is where the attitude that is behind fasting would, in fact, be appropriate. As you lament over your sin, as you humble yourself and say, God, I don't deserve anything. But when Jesus comes into your life, you see that humbling, that grief, that sorrow turned into joy. Because now your sins are forgiven, your conscience is cleared, and you have the way to God. So what does Jesus come to do? He comes to show us his uniqueness, and he comes to present a new way of relating to God. And for this, we honor 
and we praise him and respond to him as we respond to no one else. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is so distinct from everyone and everybody else. And we pray that we would respond to him and treat him in this way. Help us to trust him. Help us to love him. And we thank you for enabling us to do that. And we pray in his name. Amen.